Hi friend, welcome to this week's podcast from the First Baptist Church of Nokomis, where we are building the kingdom of God through the lives of everyday people. If you are new, you can visit our website at fbcnokomis.com. Click on our visitor information page to sign up for our e-newsletter or to learn more about our ministries. We also invite our regular listeners to partner with us and support our digital ministries by clicking the Give Online button. Well, good morning. Good morning to you. <laughs> uh, the world of COVID. <laughs> I'll say hi through the screen. Oh my gosh. Trying to set it up so that you can read too. Um, or open your Bible to John chapter 2. Um, Going to enjoy the topic tomorrow of regeneration. I've been painting a pretty broad brush over um, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, some conversation about his humanity, his divinity, um, his purpose, uh, the purpose of atonement, that the substitutionary atonement um, is part of the greater purpose of Jesus's conquering death, Hebrews chapter 2. Um, trying to really broaden our perspective that Jesus is so much more than just a um, ticket booth, if you will. The old adage of a ticket booth means that if you want to get to heaven, you go see Jesus, you take your ticket for heaven, and then that's the last you know of of Jesus in your life. Um, I shared last Sunday, I think the metaphor aptly applies, the person who wants to go into the store of God's divine privileges and buy just three dollars of grace. The reason being is they don't want all of it, they just want a little bit of it. And they want to go ahead and buy it. And Jesus says, it's not for sale. I give it to you. But the caveat is when I give it to you, it's free, it just makes you co-owner. So the expectation to participate in the sharing of that grace with others, that uh, preparing of God's word and um, witness and servitude, um, all of that comes with that grace. So that's kind of the, the reason people aren't readily jumping at the opportunity to follow Jesus. While it seems so simple, it, it comes with something that, yeah, it can be a little, little intimidating. Uh, the idea that you can't have one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. It's time to just get in and let the captain take us where he leads. So, so kind of the, the plan for this morning is um, to jump into to a prequel to tomorrow's sermon on regeneration. So while some of the elements will come through tomorrow as well, I'm um, going to go back and give the prequel, if you will, to uh, the story and in John chapter 3. The topic being regeneration. So if you want to understand salvation, to be born again, tomorrow in John chapter 3 we're going to talk about Nicodemus going to Jesus at night. But a little bit ahead of that, this Gospel of John tells us that um, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And then you follow the story as he calls his first disciples, and you have uh, John the Baptist come on scene, and you see this preliminary uh, preparation of Jesus the Messiah, the the King is coming. And then you have John chapter 2, and it sort of transitions from Jesus calling his first disciples and being acknowledged by the early disciples and John that that he is um, coming to do something special. 
Then you get this, what he's going to do that is special in John chapter 2. And it's, it's a little bit of this, this um, polarization of two stories because the part we're going to focus on now is him turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. But chapter 2 also incorporates the turning of the tables. Now, the Gospel of John doesn't follow the chronology that we find in the synoptic gospel, synoptic meaning summary, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John follows really just sort of this eschatological purpose, this storytelling of Jesus in a way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't emphasize. For example, uh, John tells us the seven miracles, the seven signs. They're seven intentional healing stories, the miracles that Jesus performs. Again, the perfect number seven that he acknowledges, whether it be at the pool of Bethsaida or um you know, you can go throughout uh, the centurion's uh, daughter. Um, you can also consider the seven I am's. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus says, for I am the bread of life. Um, you know, I am the great vine. I am the good shepherd. And there's seven of those I am's that are not be, um, you know, just sort of skirted over as if Jesus is saying something superficially. He is he is very much clarifying if you've seen if you as you've seen me you've seen the father right so here's john chapter 2 where the turning of the tables is this last week of jesus which makes us wonder if the following story with nicodemus nick at night comes close to the end but then there's this story of the water of wine and and the not chronology would be these two stories don't seem to be one after the other the 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 water to wine early in Jesus' ministry where he's just called the disciples. There's no acknowledgement of him having accomplished much to this point. And then you have the turning of the tables, which in the synoptic gospels comes that early part of his last week and what that means. Okay, so let's understand this from a perspective of regeneration, what regeneration means. Now, there are some animals that can do this. Um, in the literal sense, regenerating, say, for example, a, a salamander loses a leg, they can actually regenerate it. What I can't wait to share about tomorrow is the sort of miracle of life that for humans, we have that embryonic uh, stem cell that generates our limbs in the womb, right? What comes from a cell that has to grow into all those little fingers and digits and all the different tissues and uh, the different organs and all of that has to be created. How does that get done? And if it does get created in this miraculous sense in the womb, why is it when we're born, if something happens and you cut your finger off, why doesn't it still regrow? And humans, once we're born, those stem cells, those embryonic stem cells that created those individual parts, they transform into those cells which contain the, the health of those parts, right? Maintain them, but they don't regrow them. Whereas a salamander, scientists will, will have explored how that is much like that birthing cell creation as it regenerates that leg that gets cut off. And there are animals that do regenerate limbs, a starfish, uh, some uh, jellyfish. So, the purpose of understanding regeneration is that this is something that is being transformed. Now, for us, spiritually speaking, what does that mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? When do I remember that transformation? Now, some people will come from a heritage and go, I don't know that I had that exact moment, but I'd still emphasize what John Wesley said. There had to be, at some point, a warming of the heart. Somewhere, 
the ideology of God became the reality of Jesus. And in that transition, what is the hardest distance for God to travel, those 18 inches between what we want to think and philosophize to what we want to know and experience, that's the practice, that's the, the happening of regeneration. So this being born again, which we'll highlight tomorrow. So if you have that story, maybe it was that lightning bolt in the moment. Uh, I remind people that my wife was raised Southern Baptist. She remembers that moment. She remembers going forward. Uh, I was raised Methodist. I don't remember a time where there was the altar call and I went forward. But I do remember a couple of signature moments. I remember in junior high, I just happened to get up. Apparently, I'm always an early bird anyway. But I got up early enough to go to sunrise service. And just deciding to get up and go, I had no idea that the Spirit was probably leading I go to the sunrise service. My dad in the Methodist church, Dunlap Methodist Church, is telling the story. And I'll never forget listening. Like, it was like the first time I really listened. Like, I caught some of the stories dad might share from the pulpit. And I, I sang with the songs. But this sunrise service overwhelmed me. I remember hearing the story of how the ladies went to the tomb and it was empty. And it just boggled my mind to think that this is a true story that God sent his son, called him Jesus, the Messiah, that he lived, he performed miracles, he, he great, gave great teachings, but ultimately he died, rose again on the third day, and that sunrise service to be sitting there going, oh my goodness, it could have been just like this morning with the sun coming. And when I left, our house was across the parking lot, but I remember walking through the grass and around through where I had this these this space for our garden uh, in in the spring and summer and walking through it just sort of rubbing my hands along some of the the trees and the vines that weren't yet for the grapes and just thinking my gosh that just the whole world I could feel it in every cell of my body like it just felt so overwhelming well then of course um I could explain a few other experiences. I remember in high school and wondering uh, how God had given such hardship, whether it be, you know, my friends making fun of me or the different schools that we were going to. And one night uh, in our transitional time, we lived in an apartment and I shared it with my brother and we weren't quite getting along at the time. I actually put tape right down the middle of the room and said, you're on that side, don't, don't. Don't come to my side. Problem was is that his side was the one that had the door, so he enjoyed pushing me and picking on me even more because I had no escape from the room. <laughs> well, one night I remember I just couldn't sleep. I just felt anxious about life. And uh, 15, 14, 15 years old, we had a, a, a porch outside of our, our third-story apartment, and I went and opened the door, and it overlooked a ravine. And I remember just having a prayer that night, and the, the full moon um, just the Spirit spoke to me. Like, I got this. It's okay. That changed my life. I remember that moment. I remember this regeneration, if you will, this uh, wherever it happened in, in the, the exact moment of those experiences, I know that, that after a while, it, it made sense to me, and Jesus was as real to me as my best friend. So, um, everybody may come to that story, that conclusion in their own way, but it is important to identify that while we talk about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and I say that there's a larger picture of salvation, 
that God has a purpose for redeeming the whole world, all of creation, there is still the special creation of our humanity that he intends to transform, and he intends to do it through the heart. So here's how transformation worked as Jesus enters the ministry. We find it happening in Jesus uh, changing the water to wine in John chapter 2. Now this is the wedding at Cana. A couple of things to identify with the wedding. A wedding has three parts. Now, the first part, the kutubah, is the part where they make this contractual agreement, right, this covenant. What Joseph and Mary would have is a time of engagement. They actually had the ketubah, and it was established to say, okay, here's what the bride price is going to be, the mahan, or here's what the matan is going to be, what the groom is going to give, uh, what the groom's family is going to give to the bride's family. And there, it wasn't so much that there was a purchasing of the bride, especially not by the time it was first century, but there was an acknowledgement that as the bride entered into a relationship, into a marriage with the groom, that the family losing the daughter was losing something. So there was some compensation to that. But the bride price in turn was to say, well, if something happens to the groom, what is it for our daughter who gets left high and dry? And so there's this bride price that is, in some ways, a savings account to protect the bride. Well, that happens as much as a year or so before the actual wedding. And then the wedding itself happens, and it's sort of reverse what we think about today. We have a wedding, we have a reception, and then they have the honeymoon where they consummate the marriage, if you will. In Jesus' day, they would have the consummation first. There would be the, the chupa ceremony. And they made a pretty big, almost embarrassing deal about it where the bride party, uh, the, the groomsmen, the bridesmaids, they would actually be with as they parade the, the bride and groom at the time of this big ceremony that's happening, the first thing they would do is they'd take them to the chupa room, the place that they would consummate the marriage, and the two would go in, and they would wait for them at the door. This is like John chapter 3, the, the waiting, like waiting for the bridegroom to come out after cons consummating the marriage with the bride. You kind of wonder, like, that's not the best way to spend your first night together, but that was, that was tradition. Then when they did, they wanted to celebrate and then they would go to the wedding feast. Now, in this story in John chapter 2, we have to presume that somebody is a family or close relative of Jesus, that they're intimately involved in this wedding. And it seems to be what would always want to be the case is somebody in the family had enough wealth to have a bigger house, a bigger place to share the, the wedding feast. But this is this culmination of the, the bride and the groom, and this is the earliest part we have of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. So let's go through how this wedding takes place and where we see regeneration take place. It says in John chapter 2, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, mind you, weddings take a while. They're not just a couple of hours. They can extend for days, in fact. You know, once you get to this wedding feast, everybody's excited about it. There's a pre-feast. So they're going through a lot of wine. I know teetotalers are Baptist traditions. This is one of the stories where like, can we avoid this? Can we put it away? There's something significantly spiritual about this story that we shouldn't get lost in the, the, the subject of alcohol. But it was quite customary that there would be a lot of wine provided for this wedding feast. In, in first century culture, the wedding was, was really the only thing that was the happening place to be. If right now you wanted to go to, of course, you know, it's changed for COVID, but in recent years and certainly in modern times, you'd decide on a weekend if you wanted to go to a 
uh, movie. You decide if you want to go to a nice restaurant. You decide if you'd want to go to the zoo, if you wanted to go to, uh, to theater. If you want. We have all kinds of options. You can decide if you just want to stay home and watch Netflix, but you have those options. In first century, it was pretty much you work, and you work for a daily rate of pay, and you're pretty much trying to find subsistence to survive daily. And the best you had to look forward to were weddings. Typically, the wedding was the biggest celebration of a family, of an experience. Uh, we're not talking about Christmas. We're not talking about Easter. We're not talking about cooking the ham for the family gathering. It was the wedding. So when they had a wedding, everything you could save and put aside was to make sure that the wedding, so that there was honor to your family, was to provide for your guests at the wedding. Because you knew that that was going to be uh, a pay-it-forward type uh, experience that you provided a great wedding and then the next family that has a wedding they provide a great wedding and so collectively the community feels like you know at least a handful of times of the year we have something to celebrate other than just working like dogs from the sunrise to the sunset and just hoping we can make ends meet that's how significant the wedding was in Jesus's day so they have this but the wine is gone. And Jesus is the mother. So Mary seems to have a role in the wedding on some level. That's why we, we would assume she is, uh, the, the wedding is close to the family. She goes to Jesus and says to him, hey, they have no more wine. Of course, Jesus, at the onset of his ministry, says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, don't hurry this up. There's a time when it's going to be revealed. I don't know that it has to be today to save the honor of this family for this wedding. But the mother, Mary, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, this is significant. This isn't just talking about, like, like ceremonial washing. This is when guests came to a house and there would be this sort of moment of not only physical washing, but a spiritual washing. What it represented is, is why somebody who was a leper was unclean, that they couldn't get physically clean or healed or whole. And so in turn, they were spiritually unable to be whole. So it was one and the same. Not only are these jars for guests, now you have a wedding. So you have several dozens, 50, 80, 100. There's so many people that these six jars, so quite possibly, they may have only had a couple of them and they've brought more and they filled them all with water as water washing basins. This is the dirtiest water probably at this point as it would be ever for this household, for this space and time. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each held 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them. Now what that means is, is that when they ceremonial cleanse, they certainly used the water and splashed it out. And Jesus wants to make sure that they're full. So maybe we get some fresh water in here, but understand these basins are pretty dirty, pretty dirty stuff. <laughs> then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This is bold. I don't know about you, but I don't think I want to be the servant that not knowing Jesus really well yet, I'm not sure I want to be the servant who takes the cup, dips it into the water basin that people have been washing their hands and feet with, and taking it to the master of the house. <laughs> I'm taking it to the master of the banquet saying, hey, here you go. So the master of the banquet may be somebody from the family who uh, isn't the, the father of the groom, but could host the wedding, right? Wealthy enough to have a big enough house. 
So this is the person who's pretty significant in the room. And they come to the servant, says, uh, you know, gives the water. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. In other words, when they don't know any better, then you bring out the cheap stuff. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I just kind of... Uh, in part on us in this conversation of regeneration that we sometimes think God is going to just create something out of, out of nothing. Uh, when I speak to 2 Corinthians tomorrow, 517, where it says, and he creates something new, right? That there's the old life is gone and the new life has come for we are a new creation. Most of the time, we really want to believe that Jesus is making this transformation into a whole new person and body, as if, physically speaking, I would be regenerated, not 5, 10, 46-year-old Ryan, but 6 foot 5, 23-year-old, uh, whoever a great athlete would be that I'd admire and say, hey, I, I want to be like that. Can you make me that new creation? So many of us may have health issues and we say, I, I just wish God would create me something new. We misunderstand regeneration. Regeneration is not the conversation to be born again, is to be given the second chance to be somebody wholly different. I try to remind people, this is the difference with God and all of our, our conceptualization of faith. The, the idea that we think God is going to perform such a miracle that it transforms us into something wholly new and wholly different. And yet we, we, we disrespect what God created in the first place. So follow me on this. You can't want God to, to say, be born again so that you are somebody so different that the person you are now was never intended by God. Right? Like every child is a blessing. Every life is a blessing. And every life is a Mago Dei in the image of God in some capacity. What I'm offering is, is that our lives tend to be distorted. We make them dirty. We put a lot of gunk in sin and in despair and in doubt in our lives. And when we do that, we're robbing God of the opportunity to reveal the best of us that he planned to the world. So regeneration isn't the fact that it's something as if the old life totally gone and discarded, right, to new life, totally new and different. And some people really want that. Some people want their personality to be different. Some people want their tendencies to be different. You know, if I'm, I'm short-tempered, I believe that once I'm a Christian, I'll be mild-mannered in everything that I do. When you're a, not a Christian and, and you struggle with selfishness and, and being self-absorbed, you think I'm going to be a new Christian, and I'm not going to do that. I have worship team members who go, see, once I started coming to church, I stopped thinking about being in the band is something for me and something for show. And yet, usually, that's still a struggle, right? Because every musician is going to want an audience. There's going to be that constant question, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for God? Every Christian is going to ask, when they're transformed, how am I different? And I'm going to invite you to just acknowledge this in your spiritual life. 
because you are now becoming the best version of yourself. You're not somebody different. The new creation is possibly that it's wine, that it's better, better something to drink, if you will, but it is God's way of saying, you're still the drink that I offer to the world. I just make it pure and right again. That regeneration is to be born, to grow, to fail, to confess, to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts, to regenerate the Spirit, to restore it to the purpose of God. And then we see our lives still not any different facial features. I'm not any taller. I'm not any more physically stronger. And I still have some limitations. I still have the same temptations that I face, that you face, that everybody is unique to your own world. But God uses that to his privilege. That created new, that restoration is so important to our faith. Yes, I get it. We all feel like our lives could be a little cleaner, a little bit better. In this story, I hope you understand what regeneration involves. Let Jesus speak into your life. Let it be something that goes right to the heart that you feel personally. And then in that transformation, know that you're not going to come out of it looking any different to the rest of the world, but something within you is different. Something within you is better. And something within you is used to God's glory. May the Lord be with you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. See you next time. And remember, God is building his kingdom through the lives of everyday people just like you.